Welcome back to Leader Lab. This month in the Leader Lab, I have a very special guest, Liz Wiseman. She is the author of Multipliers. Uh, Liz, who are you and what do you do? Well, David, I am the author of Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, and I'm also president of the Wiseman Group, and we are a leadership research and development firm. We're based in Silicon Valley, and what we do is we develop executive talent and we teach multiplier leadership uh, out to uh, businesses and nonprofit organizations. I, uh, I'm, I'm very intrigued with this concept of multipliers, and I want to dig into it, but first, I want to get into a little bit of how the book came about. You, you use a great analogy of Groundhog Day to sort of describe your experience and how you came to find this multiplier principle. Uh, well, you know, it really, the, the research was born out of my work at Oracle, and some people like to joke that the book is really my post-Oracle therapy. And that is, um, it started with a very simple observation I had during the 17 years I worked in management at Oracle. When I was at Oracle, I ran Oracle University and the global learning and development function for the company. So I got to work really closely with the senior executive team. And Oracle had this ability to hire just brilliant people. And, and the senior executive team, they were all brilliant. But what I noticed in working really close to them is not all of them provoked brilliance in the people around them. And some of these leaders were smart, but I noticed that they sometimes overtly and sometimes very subtly shut down intelligence in other people. And other leaders, equally bright, they seemed to bring out intelligence and capability in others. And, and I watched as people got smart and, and, and genius-like around some people, but yet they dumbed down around others. And I found this fascinating while I was working there, and I wondered, you know, why is it that we're geniuses around some but not around others? And I left Oracle about five years ago and started doing executive development work and coaching a lot of other executives, and I saw this pattern repeated. And really, it went from a simple observation and a question, you know, why is it that some leaders seem to amplify intelligence while other leaders seem to drain it in the people around them? And this little observation and question turned into curiosity, and then really it turned into an obsession where uh, my partner and I, Greg McEwen, spent two years really focused on this same question. Why do some leaders amplify intelligence while others drain it? And, and that was really our Groundhog Day because every day I woke to the same question. And, you know, we were really relentlessly pursuing this, trying to find out what is it that these leaders do differently that causes this dramatic effect on the people around them. And it seems like what you found, or the, the culmination of all of this research, was essentially that there's two types of leaders, uh, diminishers, what you call diminishers, and multipliers. Uh, what, what's the difference between a multiplier and a diminisher? Yeah, well, first of all, let's just kind of uh, start with what a multiplier is. A multiplier is somebody who uses their intelligence to amplify the intelligence and the capability of people around them. We know these leaders. We've all worked for them. There are people around whom you feel smart you feel capable, um, there are people where, you know, around them, hard problems get solved, light bulbs go off on people's heads, you know, they create this environment of genius. You know, a diminisher is someone who drains this intelligence. You know, these are leaders who are, David, so fixated on their own ideas and often really have this deep drive to be the smartest person in the world that they, that they shut down 
the other people in the room. Um, it's almost like the collective IQ kind of drops uh, around this kind of leader. And what we did is we looked at these two types of leaders, trying to identify what are the things that distinguish them. We studied 150 leaders in 35 different companies across four continents, trying to really isolate these differences. And I think I can sum up the differences in that we found that they see the world in fundamentally different ways. They do five things quite differently, a lot of things alike, but five things very differently. And we found that they get vastly different results from people. Um, let me start with what they get from people. This was probably the most shocking thing in our research is I suspected that these leaders who served as multipliers got, you know, got more from other people. I observed this. But what was surprising is how much more. When we asked people to tell us about working for someone who operated as a diminisher versus someone we you know, later came to call a multiplier, we found that these diminishers got less than half of the capability of people around them. 48% of the intelligence of people around them, whereas multipliers got almost twice that capability. It's you know, virtually 100% of the intellect, ideas, talent, capability of people around them. What we found is that multipliers get twice the capability of people around them on their team. Essentially, they, they, they figure out how to double their workforce at, at no cost because they really get everything their people have to give. This was probably the thing that was most surprising is how little capability these diminishers got from people around them. And we found that they see the world in very different ways. Diminishers tend to look out at their staff and the people around them, and they see scarce intelligence. They see a small number of really smart people, and they tend to build this assumption that they carry with them that says, people aren't going to figure it out without me. You know, those people need a few really smart people to kind of do the thinking for the organization. Multipliers, on the other hand, they have this assumption of abundance in intelligence. They look out an organization or a team, and they see a lot of smart people. They see a lot of different ways in which people are smart, and they're constantly looking for the genius in other people. The assumption that they carry with them, if you will, is very simple but very powerful. It's this idea that people are smart and will figure it out. You know, so how would you lead if you realized, you know, if you believed that every person on your team was smart and they would figure it out. Well, and, so and how would your team feel? Exactly. You know, and if you believed that your manager knew you were smart and you would figure out, you would operate in a different way. You would take more initiative. You would assume more responsibility, more accountability. And those assumptions really drive this differential. We found there's five things that these leaders do very differently. We call them the five disciplines of the multiplier. Well, indulge me. You've already piqued my interest. Indulge me on, on what the five things are. Well, the first thing that we found is that these multipliers operate as what we call talent magnets. They, they look beyond their own capabilities, and they see deep genius and capability in others, and they figure out how to use people at their highest point of contribution. The second discipline is they operate as liberators. They, they know that organizations are inherently hierarchical, and they can very easy for a manager to end up as a tyrant. 
inside a formal organization. And what they do is they eradicate stress and fear from their, their team. And they create an intense environment, but not a tense one. They create an intense environment where people really have to do their best thinking and their best work. They put lots of pressure on, but they make it safe to make mistakes. So it's intense, not tense. The third thing we found is they operate as challengers rather than sort of dictating what people um, need to do or sort of being the know-it-all when it comes to setting direction. They show people what they can do. Uh, they seed opportunities. They let people think for themselves. And they lay down challenges that cause people to stretch in ways they thought were, were impossible. Essentially, they're the ones that ask the big questions of the organization. The fourth thing we found is that when it comes to making decisions, they operate as debate makers, not just as decision makers. So instead of making isolated decisions that leave other people in the dark, they engage people in debate up front. They bring the data, the brain power, all the right people to bear so that they, they make sound decisions that the organization understands and can execute. So essentially, rather than being kind of rapid deciders that then leave the organization debating the soundness of the decision, they have that debate up front so that the organization can execute efficiently. And the last discipline um, is what we call the investor. And instead of getting things done by, by micromanaging and hovering, they invest by giving other people ownership for results, and they give other people accountability and they invest in their capability and success. And those are really the five things we found that multipliers do very, very differently than their diminisher counterparts. If it's even appropriate to call the diminishers counterparts the multipliers. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard for me. I often use the word peers or counterparts. It's hard for me to actually see them as true peers in an organization. Oh, very true. It's hard to call someone a peer when they have twice the payroll and half the workforce. You know, it's you exactly know? right, David. It's, you know, one of the things I've come to realize is these diminishers, they often get the job done and they can drive for the results, but they are so costly to organizations. It's just like you said, you know, they, they've got, you've got to put twice the number of resources in their group to yield the same brain power. You know, every CFO should be a little suspicious of that situation. Absolutely. Now, I know you said you interviewed you know, hundreds of, of different managers and leaders. Um, can you give me some examples of, of some uh, multipliers that we might be familiar with and how they fit into those five disciplines? Yeah, sure. You know, let me give you a couple names that you'll recognize. We mostly looked for people who aren't kind of the, the usual names that have been written about in, in the leadership literature. But let me give you a couple uh, of names that you will recognize. One that everyone knows is, is Steven Spielberg. You know, everyone knows he's an artistic genius, he's, he's prolific, but when I really went down and looked at how he leads and how he directs on set, he's a great example of a liberator. He creates an environment that has tons of pressure, but he makes it okay for people to make mistakes. One of the directors who was working under him said, you know, with Stephen, every idea starts out as a bad idea. You know, he just believes that it takes time to mature ideas into really good ideas, and he allows people to do that. So many people who have worked for him say, you do your best work 
around Stephen. You know, he demands your very, very best performance. And one of the things I thought was interesting about him is that people enjoy working for him and doing their best work around him so much that they sign up again and again to to work on his teams, which allows him um, to do a rare thing for a director, which is to manage multiple projects at the same time because his team just rolls from one project and maybe pre-production into the next one um, that's going into production. So he's got this team that just stays with him, and they're really kind of twice as productive as a lot of other directors and teams. Well, absolutely, and that's what allows him to be as prolific as he is with, with releases. One of the things that we hear people say about working for these multipliers is they say they're not often easy to work for. They're very demanding and exacting leaders, much like Spielberg. They say it's sometimes exhausting, but it's exhilarating. I would do it again and again. Um, Another name that uh, I think people will recognize is is Mitt Romney, and I stumbled onto him in, in our research when someone was describing working, going to work for a Mitt early in her career. It was actually Meg Whitman who said, you know, she had come out of Harvard Business School, uh, gone to work for Bain, and one of the first things she heard was, you know, whatever you do, you want to get on Mitt Romney's team. Like, well, why? Who is this? You know, it was many years ago. Why would, why would I want to do that? And they said, you know, because not only does he deliver successful projects for clients, but people grow around Mitt. Everyone grows around Mitt. And he's someone who figured out how to use people at their highest point of contribution. And he built this reputation as just the boss to work for. And he became a talent magnet where he didn't have to go out and scout talent. Talent came and found him because people knew they would work hard, they'd be successful, they'd be stretched, and they'd be grown in their career. He's a great example of someone who's a talent magnet. Now, I, um, you know, as a, as a, Sort of on the scholarly side of leadership, I'm always fascinated. What what fascinated me about multipliers, I'm always fascinated by when you see a practical application of a theory. And when I read multipliers and I see that, I see transformational leadership theory, which is kind of a buzzword, but not a lot of people understand. You know, the four factors: the idealized influence, the the uh, intellectual stimulation, and, and all of those things. What I love about multipliers is it puts it in much easier to understand language. Um, in, in that light, if I'm a leader and I'm striving to become a multiplier, and I'm going to use multiplier now on instead of transformational leader because it's a kind of indescript term, I like multipliers better. If I want to be a multiplier, what advice do you have for me to be able to grow into that role? Well, well David, let me give you what I think is the simplest starting point. Um, I mean, we, we identified a number of practices, and, and throughout the book, you know, I, I've worked as an executive coach, so I'm always focused on how do you do this. And, and the book is full of a number of how-tos. But if I had to pick the simplest starting point that everyone can do a better job of, and that is to make the transition that few managers actually make in their career, and that is to move from having the answers to asking the questions. You know, it's something I've noticed about multipliers and about the very best executives is they see that their primary value is asking the questions that cause people to think. They cause people to see the business different, the opportunities differently. You know, they cause people to stop and think and then rethink. 
Now, the art of asking questions is, is not a simple one. You know, as uh, Tim Brown, the CEO of IDEO, said, it's not like these questions, provocative questions, are just sitting on the ground and you can just pick one up. It's how these multipliers use their intelligence to understand the issues, to sense what's going on in the organization and the environment, and to really crisp up a really, really good question that's going to move the organization forward going to be transformative for the organization. I think one of the challenges for leaders, too, is that that involves a lot of vulnerability to ask really good quality questions, whereas I think you, you tell a lot of leaders you should ask more questions, and so they ask questions that they already sort of know where it is. And, and you know, it's funny, I always uh, tell students and, and people that I work with, you know, the only dumb question is the one you already know the answer to. Exactly. And as I have coached a number of executives on how to make this transition from having the answers to asking questions, it's exactly what I see is that their, their gravitational pull is, okay, well, let me ask questions that I know the answer to. Well, people understand this game. It's like, well, if I'm being asked a question that someone else knows the answer, then I'm going to play guess what the boss is thinking. Um, and sometimes you can use these questions to steer people, to help them see things that maybe you see, but the boldest leaders ask questions that they don't have answers for. They ask questions where they know enough to know it's important to find an answer, and they know it can be done, but they don't know how it can be done. Um, I'm thinking of one executive that uh, we studied, Shia Gossi, who is the CEO of a company called uh, Better Place. He's... Um, former executive at the SAP, the German software giant, and uh, such a bright guy, really a genius. And what he does is he formulates questions where he knows something is possible, but he just doesn't know how it will be done. He built an organization called Better Place that was really seeking to reduce fuel dependence in the world, um, trying to build an infrastructure to... Um, charge batteries for electric cars in different um, markets. And he asked his team a series of questions. How do we build an infrastructure to either charge or swap out batteries in less than five minutes? That's location independent. That can be done at a low cost. That can be done across different car makers. And he asked a series of questions that he, he sensed could be addressed, could be solved, but he didn't know how. And then what Shai did as a leader, he's, he just backed away, and he gave his team two months. And he really stayed out of their hair for two months. And he issued this challenge to them with a series of questions, and it was fascinating to me that the team not only came back with an answer for how to swap out a car battery at a low-cost way, you know, independent, uh, easily, in five minutes, they came back with a solution in less than two minutes. His goal mm. was to ask the big question and then let his team of brilliant scientists and technologists find an answer. Wow, a great example, a great example of a, a multiplier and, and someone who does that. And, and with apologies to Tony Robbins for plagiarism, if you want a better answer, ask a better question. And, and I'd, I'd wager if you want to learn how to ask a better question, pick up multipliers and get some of that advice. Liz, I've got a couple questions for you. Uh, what are you reading now? Well, I'll tell you, um, I just got done reading a book that's about to come out. It's called Bury My Heart at Conference Room B, and it's a, a really interesting book about how leaders create deep engagement in their organization. That was a fun one. 
by Stan Slap, and I'm just getting started on The Why of Work uh, by David and Wendy Ulrich, which is a really, really interesting look at how leaders play a role of creating meaning and abundance in their organization by helping people discover the why behind their work. And it's something that I think is really important. It's what these multipliers do is when we understand why, why something is important, why an organization is doing it, why this has meaning, it really unleashes our full intelligence out on problems. It allows us to be fully intelligent in our work. So I think this is a, a fascinating read. You know, and it, it's funny. It seems to be, at least I hope it's the trend we remember 2010 for, but there seems to be a lot in that vein of realizing that uh, we need to bring more meaning into the workplace and we need to figure out what things, uh, you know, I interviewed Dan Pink at the beginning of the year with Drive, and that was all about we need to find more than carrot and sticks to motivate people. And you know, some part of me wonders if it's if it's almost one of the positive elements of the recession, in that we can't pay people more, so we need to figure out how to motivate them. But I think it's deeper than that, and I I truly hope it's what we remember 2010 as the year that this happened in in the realm of organizational studies that we really realize we need to answer that question of why. Yeah, that, you know, that engagement isn't something you can incent. It's something that you have to unlock. And, you know, one of the interesting things we found as we listened to people tell their stories of working for these leaders we called diminishers who got on average less than half of their capability and intelligence versus these multipliers who got it all, what we found is that working for these diminishers was exhausting and and what's exhausting is being used at less than your capability. So these people are saying, oh, yeah, I was working for this person. Maybe they got 30 or 40% of my capability, and it was exhausting. But yet they described working for these multipliers, and they said, wow, they got everything out of me. I worked so hard. I gave it all. They got every ounce of my capability, and it was exhilarating. So being used at our full is exhilarating. Being used halfway, this is exhausting. This is what creates disengagement in organizations. Oh, absolutely. We, uh, we interviewed uh, Michael Lee Stollard and Jason Pankow, who wrote um, Fired Up or Burnt Out, talked about connection cultures. We interviewed them last uh, month, and we talked a lot about flow and this idea of flow. You, you achieve it more in the workplace. People want to feel that flow in the workplace. They almost want to work hard when they work hard towards a purpose and a meaning that they click with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as we went through and really tried to identify what is it that these multipliers did, and we looked at every element of leadership that's out there in, you know, sort of the scholarly and popular um, literature on leadership. We looked at a number of these HR levers, and we found no correlation with incentives and really no, no correlation even with sort of like, um, you know, values programs and things. You know, it's not something – you can't pay people to be smart. What you can do is give people interesting challenges and puzzles and environments where they can do their best thinking and work. And when you do that, you know, the, the, that work and using our intellect is the reward in and of itself. This is not something you have to pay people to do. You simply then just get out of their way. No, absolutely. And, and I'm loving how much literature is coming out on that recently. And, and, I mean, it's quite a stack of things to read. Uh, obviously, at the top of that should be multipliers. Uh, Liz, what's next for you? Well, you know, 
there's there's kind of two fronts where there's things like there's the teaching front and there's the research front. In terms of you know the teaching front, uh, both Greg and I are are really committed to teaching multiplier leadership to essentially everywhere we can to companies, to schools, to governments, and in some ways, you know, I see it as as our mission not just to teach multiplier leadership. We really we want to end diminishing leadership. You know. We don't think organizations should be led this way. We don't think this is how you harvest human intellect and capital. So we are really on a mission to end diminishing leadership. And, and so a lot of my energy over the next couple of years will be teaching these ideas. Uh, on a research front, there are a number of interesting questions that, that we'd like to further research. Um, there's a lot of nuances about multiplier leadership that, that we're interested in. But one of them that has come up is why is it that some people aren't diminished by diminishers? Um, that there's a certain, in a lot of people, there's a certain kind of built-in resilience and this ability to kind of self-multiply. Um, a question we hear over and over as we talk to people, everyone wants to know, how do I work for a diminisher and survive? You know, my boss is a diminisher. What do I do? Um, so this is something that is interesting to us. You know, how do you, how do you really self-multiply? How do you work for as a multiplier in a diminishing kind of organization, or how how do you be a multiplying uh, middle manager in a diminishing you know senior organization? Absolutely, yeah. I think one of the powers in the multiplier ideas is this notion of giving yourself permission to be a better leader than your boss. I can't tell you how many times I run into leaders, middle managers, or even pretty senior managers senior executives in organizations who say, Liz, I can't lead that way because my boss doesn't lead that way. And like, who said you can't be a better leader than your boss? Who said that you can't be a better leader than the average leader inside your organization? Um, you know, I think when people who step up and lead like multipliers are going to get so much more from their resources and their people that it will help create that kind of culture. Um, Another question that you know we get asked a lot as a result of this book is people see the implications um, not only in business but in, in government and in community and schools and in homes. And um, people said, well, what about what are the implications for parents? Isn't this kind of a parenting model as well? And and that's something that might be a, a further research project. Those really intriguing topics, and we'll. We'll be on the lookout for them. In the meantime, if people want to get a hold of you about multipliers or the Wiseman Group, how can they get a hold of you? Well, it's really, really easy. If you want to know more about the ideas in the book, there's a website, multipliersbook.com. On there, there's all sorts of resources. You can go to my favorite page, which is Meet the Multipliers, and um, you know, click on the pictures of some of these people and just learn more about them and what they do. And we've got video resources out there. So you can hear how they lead through their own words. You don't have to um, hear it through my my words. Um, we've got a quiz out there. Are you an accidental diminisher? Most diminishers don't mean to. And there's a fun little quiz out there. You can also watch some video. If you want to know more about the Wiseman Group, what we do, there's a website there, thewisemangroup.com. Uh, there's blogs on both spots. You can contact us through those sites or send me email at Liz at thewisemangroup.com, and I'd be happy to talk with you. Oh, fantastic. And we'll have links to all of those uh, in the show notes if you want to head over to 
theleaderlab.org to we'll make sure you get uh, get links to those websites and also to where you can pick up a copy of Multipliers. Uh, Liz, thanks so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Well, David, thank you for having me, and thank you for an interesting conversation about leadership, transformational leadership, and uh, engagement in organizations. Absolutely. And when you find out how to, uh, how to work for a diminisher, we'll have to have you on and explain that one, too. <laughs> Happy to do that. Thank you, David. 